What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back and their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless from researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience. Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. Tens of thousands of invaders slash Democrat voters are pouring across our southern border and help is not on the way. But it's not rocket science. If these illegals were turned right back around and sent right back where they came from, they would stop paying cartels thousands of dollars to get into our country. Because, you see, while they claim to all be refugees and asylum seekers with little more than the clothes on their back, that's actually a lie. Because you don't cross the border for free. There is no such thing as free passage. These illegal aliens pay the cartel and they pay them thousands and then suck off the American taxpayer once they get through. And if you're not outraged by this, you probably don't have a pulse. Hell, even New York City Mayor Eric Adams is outraged. He's made it known the Biden administration is not doing anything and help is not on the way. We are at an untenable situation right now, and it is painful for us. Uh, it is painful for the city. And I think that you see it being reflected in the polls. It is because our federal government actions have taken a toll on the people of this city. Uh, we're going to continue to do our job um, in this administration, uh, but it's, these are extremely challenging times. And as I left uh, Washington, D.C., I did not leave with optimism. I left with the cold reality uh, that uh, help is not on the way in the immediate uh, future. It's a problem, all right, a massive problem, but I fail to see the challenge. Why is this such a hard concept? These people are walking right on in, and yet these so-called leaders are acting like they're being beamed down from an undetectable spaceship. No, you're letting them in. You're feeding them, you're clothing them, you're sheltering them, you are allowing this to happen. This is a choice. That's why I get so frustrated talking about this every week. It's a solvable problem that no one with power wants to solve. They just keep putting their fingers in the fire and acting shocked when they get burned, or I guess more accurately when we get burned because these lawmakers aren't feeling a damn thing. And they claim they can't stop the flow due to asylum laws. Well, guess who was sent by the American people to make and change laws? Y'all, so get to work. Joining me now and in just a moment is someone who I imagine is even more frustrated by these daily scenes than I am. She spent her time at the border documenting the invasion, most recently in Lukeville, Arizona, where she's watched thousands of illegals flout our laws, like this 20-year-old gentleman, a gamer and a content creator in Morocco, who paid thousands to get over here. So now, according to him, we owe it to him to take care of him.
Take a look. So because you paid $7,000, then it's I, okay if we I pay don't something. Care. I don't okay. care if this for America. I don't care. So you're, you're because you paid $7,000, yeah. it's okay that Americans it's have to pay okay. some money too. Yeah, because America is uh, my dream. If America doesn't want me, I'm here for America. So you're saying you respect our rules, but you didn't follow the rules yeah, to no, get in. No, no, I, look. Uh, I mean, you I know. Have, I, yeah, I know. I have no idea how to get visa to travel to America. <laughs> Joining me now is the journalist behind that video and many, many more like it, News Nation correspondent Ali Bradley. Thank you so much for being with me. I know you were recently in Arizona. Now you're in Texas on the border beat. I'm envious of you because I love seeing what's going on at the border, but I can uh, only imagine how frustrating it must be. Tell me about that video. It went on much longer, but you have so many videos that are very similar to that one. Yeah. Hey, Tommy. So that situation, I actually have a beautiful update for you. I actually just heard from Os or Osama um, via WhatsApp. He's in New York City. He made it there. He's now asking me um, how he can get a job, if he can legally work and how to get a bank account. And so that person in that video has already been gone through a processing system and is already released into New York, which is where he said he wanted to go. And when it comes to that video, um, I had a long conversation with him, right? And so it wasn't something where it was fragmented together. We talked for quite a while and those were some of the things that he was saying. And he's not a one-off on this, Tommy. A lot of individuals that I've talked to along the Southern border over the last two and a half years, because that's exclusively what I've been covering, a lot of them tell me that they're here to work and yeah, they don't have any family here. And you even heard, if you listen to the rest of that interview, he was okay with his family staying there and just coming here to visit, but they didn't speak English. So he says they can go back to Morocco, which begs the question, how is he not safe there, but his family is, right? So there's a lot of those um, individuals out there right now that are going through the system, going through the process, and they're being put in what DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas refers to as removal proceedings under Title VIII. That was the premier removal authority before Title 42. It's been around. It's back around. But here's the thing. The removal proceedings under this administration, for the most part, include what this individual is dealing with right now. It's going to be a notice to appear within six months to six years. So most of these individuals are going through this process, and they say that they have to be able to go through this process and claim asylum. But as you even hear in that individual's interview, there's not one mention of asylum. There's not one mention that he's fleeing persecution. There's not one credible fear claim in the you know 12 minutes that I'm speaking with him. He does not mention that at all. Two and a half years ago, Tommy, you could not have paid a migrant to tell me that they were here to work or that they did not have family here. Now they're saying the quiet part out loud. It's very common to hear people down there. The vast majority of the individuals that I've spoken to and the ones in Lukeville were mostly from Africa. They're all here to work. It's an entitlement that they feel. I've been to the border myself during the Trump administration, a much different scene during the Trump administration, as we know, when Remain in Mexico was the policy, when Trump threatened tariffs on Mexico and Mexico actually had to cooperate. I want to get to that in a moment because you did some excellent reporting on that. But just going back to that video and, and many more like it, I've seen a lot of your videos, whether they're coming from Africa or China or any part of the world, there's a common thread here that they just want to come to America. They want to pursue their dreams. They want to find a job. Maybe not. Maybe they just 
just want to get a free hotel room. But I haven't seen many videos where these people are saying, I'm fearing for my life. I have a credible asylum claim. But why would they? Why would they have to? They know that that's not necessary. And when you have a notice to appear or more accurately, a notice to disappear, they realize that they're going to come live and work in this country. They're going to hide out in the shadows. They're going to be gifted, you know, the perks and privileges of being an American, even though they're not. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't flout our laws when they see what's happening. But let's talk about Mexico, because Mexico, um, you have also documented paperwork that you have seen on some of these illegal aliens, migrants coming through. Mexico is actively passing them through to the United States. Can you tell me what you've seen? Yeah, so there's a couple of things with this. This has been going on for quite a while. When I walked with the caravan over two years ago, this was what was happening. The caravan was basically demanding visas, demanding documents, and those are what those documents are. So it's been going on for quite a while, but it's still going on. And the thing is, is Mexico has literally said, we didn't invite them here. They don't want to stay in Mexico. And they don't. They have no intention of staying in Mexico. So Mexico's like, well, why are we keeping them here? Go on. And you can see in that document there, it's clearly marked for transit. And they're saying, hey, we're doing our part. We're helping because we're allowing these individuals to live and work here. How is a 40-day transit visa allowing anyone to live and work anywhere? It's very clear what those documents are being used for, and it's to get them up and out of their country and into the United States. Because if they have that document, they can go through any checkpoint. If they don't, they're going to be stopped at those checkpoints and returned back to Tapachula or further across the Suchayate River to Guatemala. So that's what's going on down there. They literally are giving them a fast pass to the United States back door to Mexico. And I confronted Mexican authorities too, Tommy, because I was down there for two weeks and I was watching these uh, human smugglers literally cut through the wall, blowing kisses at me, uh, sending a Peruvian man with one leg through a hole that they cut in the wall. They're waving at me. Uh, one coyote literally summoned me over to the wall. I'm talking with him, you know, about a foot away. Uh, he's laughing at me, recording me. It won't, won't show me his face, won't tell me his name or how much he was paid uh, to move those individuals. But with all of that said, Mexican officials were pretty much nowhere to be found. And it takes a little while to cut through that wall. It's steel, concrete, and there's two forms of rebar right in the middle of it. And they're using these um, power saws with these little angle grinder discs out there too. And that's what they're using. It takes like an hour Mexican officials are nowhere to be found. So when they finally showed up, I asked them where they were. They didn't want to answer. They literally walked away from me. Someone in their group even threatened to take my phone because I had it through the wall in Mexico demanding answers because where are they? You know, a lot of people say Mexico could and should be doing more. Yeah, well, too bad Kamala is not addressing those root causes. But I'm glad you brought up the, the wall and the physical barriers. I think a lot of people are wondering, where are Border Patrol agents? Because right there in the name, Border Patrol, you'd think if it took an hour to cut through the wall or the fencing, that Border Patrol could be there to respond. Now, this isn't me crapping on Border Patrol. It's not their fault. Um, when you speak to these Border Patrol agents, I've spoken to them myself, where are they instead of being there to make sure that the vandalism destruction of our wall isn't going on? 
Okay, so there's this is kind of a two-part thing here. So the first part is every single Border Patrol agent in the Tucson sector right now, including the ones at the port of entry, uh, Lukeville's port of entry, which will be CBP officers, they've all been pulled. They're all transporting and processing the hundreds of individuals that are pouring through those open holes in the wall every single day. As soon as one of them is fixed, they've got a new breach point somewhere else. So it's like whack-a-mole down there for Border Patrol agents. And the reality is they can't be out there driving up and down that wall now. We did call Border Patrol when we were witnessing that. They showed up about 20 minutes into it, and they were armed. They were able to um, basically scare those human smugglers away. They packed up and left. But they were at it again about a half hour later, and we were able to. that's when we were able to see them send people through another cut in the wall. So it's constant for them, and they just don't have the manpower. Now, the other thing that's really kind of disheartening, and no, we don't want to, you know— uh, poo all over the people who are supposed to be protecting us. But at the end of the day, you have a lot of new hires, Tommy. You have a lot of people who are jaded in the, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the agency right now. And the reality is one of the agents I talked to said, why are we going to go up there and put our lives on the line, get rocks thrown at our face, have guns drawn on us? Because they are uh, known for brandishing their weapons and causing problems. They have thrown rocks at these agents, obviously, and caused problems. And they're like, they're going to cross anyway. Because, Tommy, they're crossing and the administration right now is allowing it. So Border Patrol's like, okay, we're going to go deter them at this hole when we need to be doing something else. Or we could, I mean, they're not going after Godaways or anything right now. They are right. processing and transporting. So they kind of have this skewed mentality that's kind of jaded, you know. Why are we going to do that when they're going to cross anyway and it's going to be allowed? Yeah, they're babysitting. And this sounds like a common thread, not only for Border Patrol agents, but our law enforcement agents who are feeling a lot of the same pressures and effects in our American cities where they're wondering why they would chase down criminals when they know that they're going to be released from jail with cashless bail policies. I mean, it's, it, this is law enforcement in general that has been demoralized and has been undercut by this administration and these policies. But you mentioned the smugglers, right? So this isn't just an American like myself upset that these people are taking advantage of us. This is also a humanitarian crisis because you've got human smugglers, drug smugglers coming across our border relatively undeterred. You've seen a lot of these children. I saw other photos that you posted, children wearing addresses on their T-shirts. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the Del Rio sector, which is where I am right now, posted this one. Um, this child came across unaccompanied. And that's very common for them to have writing on their shirts, to have a note card pinned to them. Um, a lot of people talk about how these kids are being separated in the U.S. from their parents. And that's unfortunately um, just, well, not unfortunately, but it's the reality is that's not the case. A lot of these individuals, Tommy, are being separated in Mexico. I met two little girls, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old from Ecuador, who just kept asking me for their mom. It was pitch black out, 48 degrees. They were cold. They were by themselves. You know, all the Border Patrol agents down there are men, and there's, there's no problem with that. But when you're a child and you're a little girl, um, they didn't really have anybody uh, that could offer them any kind of safety. And so I kind of stepped in and tried to be that uh, middle person for them and brought them some Pop-Tarts and um, tried to have my dogs be able to be there for them to play with because they were so distraught. The little girl, just tears were pouring out of her eyes. And the mom was already apparently in the United States. She wasn't in Lukeville. She's already in the U.S. And this is not the first case I've seen like this either. We've seen little girls come over in Eagle Pass. The mom, we we called them on WhatsApp. And the mom goes, well, I told them to give her to that lady. And she didn't really 
care what was going on, just demanded that her daughter be sent to her. And that's kind of what I'm hearing from HSI Special Agent Victor Abla saying that he's seen a lot of these cases. And a lot of times the parents give up their kids as payment, say they can't pay the cartel $5,000, but they have two or three children. And those kids might be able to help someone else cross that doesn't have kids or other nefarious things can go on with those kids, but they kind of get a promissory note, right? We're going to send that kid back to you and reunite them with you. And I asked Border Patrol, I said, what are the chances that these little girls are going to find their mom? And they said, they don't know and they can't guarantee it. And that is the reality. And we've talked about, you know, a lot of individuals that are down here, you know, are, are here for a better life, economic migrants. I've met some asylum seekers. I've met people who have crossed the border and fell to their knees, dirty and disheveled and crying and absolutely distraught, coming to me, uh, hugging me because they were gang raped in Mexico. A lot of really, really awful things. I've seen lifeless bodies pulled to the shore right in front of their children, resuscitated people literally trying, losing their life, trying to come in. But for the most part, the vast majority of them are here to seek that better life, to literally come here to work. They are not fleeing persecution. And some of them that almost give up their life to be here, it's just for money. It's right. just, they're willing to die for money. And at that level, I mean, you're just, it's mind blowing, right? But that's not what our asylum system is. Mm -hmm. And that's not what the process is. And that's not the legal way through. And all of these people too, Tommy, none of the ones from Africa know about the CBP1 app. And they all traverse through Central America and Mexico. So it's really interesting because the messaging from DHS is obviously getting lost on that one because that is their legal pathway. Last question I have for you. These individuals that are coming over from around the world, have they told you how they got to Mexico? Because you don't just walk from China. You don't just walk from Africa. Somebody's got to be funding this effort because it's got to be an expensive one just to get to the point where they can cross. Have they enlightened you at all into how they're making this travel and this journey? So a lot of them tell me that they saved up and you don't just come to America without any money. It costs a lot of money. Um, the ones in Africa specifically, like we heard from um, Ososama saying that he paid $7,000 to get here. Now, they usually take a flight from wherever, whatever country they are in to another country, Nicaragua, it might be Venezuela, might be Ecuador, might be any of those places because they don't have the same stringent laws on visas and travel that the United States does. So they'll go there first and then they'll traverse from there. But here's the other thing. Most of them are not walking anymore. They're taking a plane to a bus, to a to a car, right to the back door. It is not a lot of people that are, are traversing on foot. Two and a half years ago, you heard that story a lot more frequently, right? They're, they're walking all the way mm -hmm. from Africa, even though that's not possible. But now they are being a little bit more honest and open about how they're getting here. Um, some of the individuals from Africa are apparently going to these IOM MRC centers, these kind of migration centers that are set up. And it's basically an arm of the United Nations. And the United States is actually the biggest donor of that program, if you will. And some of the people are kind of um, getting guidance on where to go and what is the best opportunity for them because, you know, they might want to go to Europe because they all speak French. But there's somebody in the mix here saying the U.S. might be a better option for you. And they get all of those things in line. It's not, you know, they all have help from a friend, Tommy. And you're like, OK, so that's some kind of cartel member, somebody down the line somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody, right? And they're all friends. And you're like, oh, did you deal with the cartel? And they're like, oh, no, it was a travel person mm -hmm. that helped me get a ticket. And you're like, 
okay, there, there's not a legal route here. So it has to be through a pipeline. It's a coordinated effort. Nothing happens on accident. Um, and to hear Osama, who is a streamer and a gamer, say that he doesn't know about a legal pathway and his yeah. CBP1 app is kind of interesting. Yeah. And he has $7,000 to get into our country legally that he's going to pay to a criminal organization. But yet when they get here, we are supposed to pay for them. I wonder what the average American could do with an extra $7,000 this holiday season. It's outrageous. Thank you for all your reporting. Following you on Twitter, you and our good friend, obviously, Bill Malusian out there putting out the truth, documenting this with videos. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Please stay safe and uh, very happy holidays to you. Thank you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Tommy. I'll invite you to come down anytime. We can take on the border together. Hey, I would love that, and I might take you up on it if they let me. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks. All right, folks, it is giving season, and the brand-new Outkick store is officially live, so shop for yourself or stock up on gifts for your fearless patriots in your life and score 50% off for a limited time. All you have to do is visit shop.outkick.com. All right. Though Trump supporters claim Trump is ahead in the polls by a million, billion, bajillion, bigly points, some, such as myself, are a bit concerned that Trump 2023 is not the same Trump we knew and loved in 2016 through 2022. But there's no question Trump has lost a step or multiple steps. He is confusing Joe Biden for Obama. I know he's now saying he intentionally did that. Go back and look at the clips. It wasn't intentional. It was very, it, look, any of us could have a slip of, of the tongue, but it's happening to him repeatedly. Ooh, here to debate and discuss that and so much more as host of the Sean Spicer Show and former White House press secretary under Donald Trump, Sean Spicer. All right, Sean, I just want to jump in because obviously that was a hot topic of conversation after the fourth debate last week. Megyn Kelly, of course, saying, hey, listen, Donald Trump is obviously he's doing well, but he might have lost a few steps here and there since he first ran in 2015. Do you see the same thing that Megyn Kelly's seeing? I, look, I, I think that we're making a mountain out of a molehill. I mean, he slipped up saying um, Biden's name a couple of times, calling him Obama. I watched a, a mainstream host do that yesterday, calling uh, President Biden, oh, Biden. And she literally stopped mid-sentence and said, you know what I mean? So I, I think if this was happening at the frequency of, of President Biden, I would say that there's cause for concern. But President Trump is out there every day doing interviews, rallies, et cetera. Uh, and we can find a handful of instances. So to suggest that this is somehow um, a, a bigger problem. Now, look, that being said, as we get older, all of us lose a little uh, little edge, if you will. So I, I think there's a line between the natural evolution that all of us face in terms of age and whether or not he's still up to the job. The bottom line is he is still up to the job. And, and this is a bit nitpicky for folks on our side. Yeah, I'm not worried about his cognitive ability. I'm not worried about his physical ability. That's really not my concern at all with Donald Trump. There are some other things that I'm a little bit more concerned about, and, and we could go into this for a long time, but I'm just going to mention the two at the top of my list. COVID and the anointing of Fauci, two, the recent support for BLM. Those two things um, in the last couple of weeks have really bothered me, have not set well with me. Do you have any, any of those concerns that maybe the Donald Trump of today, not cognitively or physically, but just ideologically maybe, might be a little different than the man who run on Making America Great Again in 2016 and in 2020? 
I, I would narrow that a little bit more, Tommy. I think stylistically, um, look, the, the dictator comment that he made the other day, I get he was joking and he said, of course, it's in the context of just building a wall and drilling two things that you don't need to be a dictator for. You can just do them. Uh, you could talk about using executive privilege and executive authority to do all this stuff. There are times when I think he's trying to make a point and he doesn't realize that for a lot of people, they don't get necessarily his humor or at the level of the presidency that things aren't as funny as they are to some degree if you're <laughs> hosting a show or just an average citizen. I, I think the COVID thing, I agree with you on, except I'll give him a bit of a pass there. Uh, there was a lot coming from the outside that we didn't understand at the time. We trusted a lot of people in the in the health community uh, to do the right thing, to give us the truth. I, I think we all learned a lot through that. The BLM comment, I, I agree with you on. I think that the idea of how destructive they were to our country, to society as a whole, um, and to how duplicitive so many of the actions that they've taken are. And now we find out the media that went all in on BLM suddenly is now has, has you know, uh, backed off a little bit as if we forget them. So I, I do think that any attempt to uh, to to normalize BLM and praise them in those comments that he did, I get what he's doing, but to you and I and people who follow this, that's just, there's a problem with people who in any way, shape or form normalize the actions that those people took and, and the money that they spent and the destruction that they have caused to society as a whole. Yeah, it bothered me because there is a way of saying, hey, listen, you're right, sir. BLM has failed the black community. I will do my part to, to bolster the black community. You can say that without saying BLM, I support BLM. I mean, the, the Truth Social I, post was just beyond the pale to me. Just to be clear, though, this goes back to my point about stylistically. Yeah. I think when you look at President Trump's actions as four years of president, I know what he will do, where he ultimately comes out on this, that he does stand up for conservative principles. I've been in the game 30 years. I ran my first campaign in 1993. I, I think when you look at his record of achievement in terms of conservative values, whether it's standing up for life, uh, U.S. interests overseas, tax policy. So whether no matter what aspect of conservative policy you look at, I think Donald Trump accomplished more over four years than we've seen in any two-term president. That being said, I think that words matter. And that's where I think stylistically he has to be a little bit careful. But I know where I believe sort of his heart is, where he'll come out on the policy. And that's why I, I feel like it's, you know, despite- well, I, have to, I have to ask you this, because the only critique that I had beyond- COVID during the Trump presidency was the First Step Act. I know a lot of people thought that was great. I did not. Uh, I didn't think let the felons out was the battle cry that I voted for. I think that he got duped by several people, including Kim Kardashian, and he liked the attention that someone like Kim Kardashian was giving him. And I think that he went too far on that. And once again, his advisors told him that somehow letting the felons out would get the black vote. So that bothered me. And I feel like this BLM thing kind of goes hand in hand with that. So I wonder if BLM was in the street riding, but at the same time they said, burn that bitch down, but we love Trump. Would Trump say, okay, no, no, stop. I'm calling in the National Guard. Or would he say, hey, they love Trump. I don't like that I have to question that, but I question that a little bit. Do you see kind of where I'm coming from on that one? Yeah, I do. But again, I'd go back to the record of where things ultimately ended up, you know, and I, I get it. He has a tendency uh, to appreciate people who praise him. Um, and you've seen that with Democratic governors during COVID as well. I understand it. But again, I'll go back to the record uh, and what ultimately happened during those four years. And it ultimately ended up every time 
furthering conservative principles. You look at, I, I, I mentioned this to someone the other day, you know, during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, most politicians would have cut and run. In fact, there's several anecdotes of him being encouraged to do so by the highest levels of, of elected officials in the Republican Party. Trump stuck with Kavanaugh. And I think that we as conservatives now reap the benefits of that. This is not some weak minded guy that's going to let down conservative values. Brett Kavanaugh is is a strong constitutionalist, somebody I believe that we are going to have for decades on the court, along with Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch. But I think that Trump showed that he was willing to fight and stay with people in the fight. um, And that that matters to me. Yeah, it matters to me, too. I mean, I'm not disputing his record because it's a fantastic one. And I'm not even saying that, you know, I don't support Trump. Some of the things that he said, though, I would be dishonest if I said that they didn't bother I, me. Look, I, and I, and I don't disagree. I mean, I, 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 I've said it to him before um, and I've said it to supporters. I, I'm actually um, having Steve Bannon on my podcast later this week. And that's one of the topics I want to cover. You think about the, the, what's going on right now in our election. Nobody like and people generally like Joe Biden. And I just Mm -hmm. just what I'm saying in in terms of independence and people like that, they'll say, oh, we like him. He's a nice guy. Right. Right. I don't want to go down that, but I'm just trying to make a quick point here. Policy wise, they look at Biden and say, I can't stand what he's doing for policy wise. I can't stand but he's domestic policy wise. You look at Trump and by in large, you can go pretty far left and people will at least give him credit for what he did in the economy, that he kept us out of foreign wars. Right. And they'll say, OK, I may not like Trump, but with Trump, the folks on the left, they don't necessarily disagree with the policies. They disagree with the personality. That's the fixable point. Mm-hmm. He can Joe, Joe Biden can't fix his policies. He's a leftist. That's who he is. He, he's a progressive leftist that is always going to be that way. Donald Trump can can tweak the personality point. And that to me, if you are just concerned about winning and being able to institute those policies, that's the most fixable problem there is. And that's why I would urge Donald Trump. I've seen him privately comfort people, empathize with people, um, shower them with attention. He one-on-one in a room, nobody wins a, a room over like Donald Trump. Right. And it is that quality that I think he should focus on because he can outdo Joe Biden every day, six ways to Sunday. He can win the personality war. That's easy for him. And everybody's already with him on the policy. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't know if he will do that, but I think that it's fixable. (laughs) I don't know that that's going to happen. But, you know, I want to turn to something else that I think is interesting, the whole Kevin McCarthy of it all, saying that he's going to step down at the end of the year, he's not going to run for re-election, but he's open to taking a position in the Trump administration. This kind of throws a real weird wrench into the machine here because, you know, Matt Gates, who was a mega, ultra mega, wanted McCarthy out. And so then all the people that follow Matt Gates are really the mega crowd. They wanted McCarthy out because he was a rhino. But then you've got McCarthy, who's still loyal to Trump, who says he would be open to being on a Trump cabinet. We know Trump likes people who praise him. We know that Trump, because McCarthy has praised him, has praised McCarthy. So this puts the mega crowd in a tough spot. How do you think it's going to shake out? So I've always said that jobs senior jobs in the Trump administration are a two-way street. You have to want it and he has to want you, right? When we talk about vice presidents, people always throw out names and I'll say, does any, you know, you have to assume that person wants to do the job and that Trump wants them. You know, I get 
people tell me all the time, Nikki Haley would make a great, great vice president. And I'm like, A, she'd never do the job. She couldn't even stay as UN ambassador. And then B, Trump knows too much about, I mean, like, so that's not going to happen. Now, getting to McCarthy, I kind of start, when I heard that, I said to myself, what job would he want? What job would Trump want him for? Because I don't really see an obvious choice here. Secondly, I think to your point, there's enough people who would be concerned about Kevin McCarthy's role in the administration. And third of all, I'd say, well, wait a second. If you want to go back into government service, you are elected to a two-year term. Why can't you do the job that you have right now, but then you're willing to go back? I mean, so I'm not sure that it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I'm not sure either, but I do think it's really interesting just because puts mega in a weird spot, you know? But I don't know that it does. Here's the thing, Tommy. I don't know that, I mean, McCarthy, you're absolutely right. He was praised by Trump a lot. And I think yeah. part of the reason goes back to what you were saying earlier. I think Trump looked at the, the options for speaker early on and said, I, McCarthy will largely carry the water for me. Uh, we've got a good relationship, so I'll take him. But I don't know that that McCarthy's that on board with the MAGA agenda, and therefore I don't know what role he would serve. Well, see, that's what I that's um, what I want to know because you know, in the first Trump administration, Trump appointed a lot of really horrible people to positions that he shouldn't have. I mean, I could think of probably five off the top of my head. So this is what concerns me: What would the Matt Gates of the world say if Trump wins the election and he appoints McCarthy to a senior position? Do the Matt Gates followers did they then turn on Trump and get angry at that because they worked so hard to get McCarthy out? That's what I'm seeing down the road is going to cause a little bit of a conundrum here because you've got the people that wanted McCarthy out. Well, if Trump puts him in. What are they? criticize Trump. I don't think they'd ever do that. So I'm not sure. It's, you, you know, you bring up a really great scenario. I remember early on when we were debating healthcare, and Mark Meadows, then a congressman leading the Freedom Caucus folks, came out against it. And I was sort of and they said, we're against President Trump because we're trying to protect his agenda, the MAGA agenda, not not that we're against him. And I was very intrigued on how that debate played out. And I kept telling the president, it's going to be fascinating because these are supposed to be your most loyal and steadfast supporters. And here they are objecting to a a policy goal of yours. Um, They didn't pay too big of a price. And so I think the answer to your question to me depends on the role. If Kevin McCarthy gets named special envoy to, you know, Uzbekistan, (laughs) I don't know that that's going to be a big problem. If he names him chief of staff, I think the Matt Gates team comes full out and says, there's no way we can deal with this guy. You need somebody new. Um, But I also think that Trump's Trump's barometer on on who does well, especially after four years, is much better now than it was on, on say, January of 2016. God, I just hope it's not Kanye West. Um, Last thing I want to talk to you about real quick is a controversy over the weekend that's had a lot of people kind of up in arms, Piers Morgan being one of those people. Alex Jones back on Twitter, back on X. Do you agree with that decision that Elon made to reinstate him after that public poll? Or do you think that uh, it's a bad thing to have him back on these platforms? So generally speaking, I'm a champion of free speech. Um, and I think if you're going to be a free speech platform, um, it's a, it's a, I, I think there's some legal things that I'm probably not the best person to weigh in on. I do default to free speech. Um, I, I think the way that Elon is doing this with putting it out there and saying 24 hours, you decide. Um, might not be the smartest business move in the long run, but I'll let, you know, he's made more billions than I'll ever make um, millions. So we'll, I'll, I'll defer to Elon on that. That being said, 
I, I do default to free speech. I think as soon as we start saying one person can't, another person can, we go down the road that we're in right now. And as a conservative that has been attacked at college campuses and been, you know, had tweets and statements taken out of context and shadow banned, I, I would rather see more speech and less. I'd rather see the reason the First Amendment exists is to protect that which we don't like, not which we not which we want more of. No, I agree with you, and, and I think that whether you love him or hate him, he should be allowed to have a voice on the platform because it allows people to distinguish between BS and, and what's true and, and morals and values, and I think there's a place for everyone. So I have to ask, in that same vein then, and I know that this will be my last question because I'm going to go into it with my final thoughts, do you think along that same vein of free speech, absolutely, do you think the UPenn president deserved to get the backlash that she got? And was it the right decision for her to kind of step down forcibly? Yes, for a different reason, though, because you, if you're consistent, if you said I have always supported free speech, uh, then I'd have a little bit more sympathy for her. she hasn't. That's that UPenn and every other institution is is a horribly against every conservative. They pick and choose. And I think that was the point that Elise Stefanik was making in the mm -hmm. questioning. There's no level of consistency about what they are for. Not to mention the fact that calling for the genocide of folks is a little different than saying, I support the Palestinians, right? When you are outright calling for the death of a group of individuals, you've crossed a different line than just allowing for free speech. But most importantly, like I said, there is a level of hypocrisy and inconsistency throughout all of these institutions of higher learning that you and I and so many other conservatives have seen up front and close. And so the idea that some of these, the problem I have, by the way, the biggest problem is there's not going to be a lesson learned, that they will lose one or two of these presidents who've made a mm -hmm. stupid mistake. And I think that they should be fired for stupidity. The idea that you can't answer that question so easily should have been the reason they got fired. I would have fired just saying, wow, that's stupid that you can't answer the question. Um, but I, I, I just unfortunately don't think any of them are going to learn the lesson that this is about the idea of free speech and that conservatives should have a voice as well. They're going to look at this as a very isolated incident. They're going to put out their hostage video saying that they screwed up and then everything will be go back to normal. Yeah. Well, I think when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars in donations hanging in the balance, maybe that <laughs> will make the difference. Yeah, but that, gotcha. that and only yeah. that. Also worth mentioning, some of these Ivy League universities protect fat people more than they one, protect One quick Jews. point, Tommy. The idea that 500 faculty and staffers came out in support of Harvard makes me, if I had a child there, I would yank them out right away. That tells you a lot about the faculty and staff at Harvard University, that they defaulted to support President Gay and not anything about, wow, I mean, think about if you're a Jewish student on campus and you're taking a class right now, how you've got to feel knowing that that's where the faculty and staff come down. They don't even want her to apologize. They're all good with it. That says a lot about that institution. Pull your kids, pull your money, and maybe things will change. Sean, thank you, as always, for taking the time with me. Merry yeah. Christmas, happy holidays, Christmas. and we'll see you in the new year. You bet. Merry Christmas. All right. Speaking of that, the UPenn president, who couldn't bring herself to condemn the genocide of Jews, has resigned, and turns out liberals really hate cancel culture when it applies to them. Well, that's too bad. It's time for Final Thoughts. If you sit in front of Congress and debate the free speech merits of students calling for the genocide of Jews on your campus, do not be surprised if you were shown the door, in case you missed it. At Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? 
If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. After well-deserved backlash from that atrocious display of ignorance and anti-Semitism, UPenn's president, Liz McGill, has resigned in the wake of that testimony, and rightfully so. And Liz wasn't the only one. Scott Bach, the chair of the university's board of trustees, also announced he is stepping down. Now, I'm not sure the backlash alone would have pushed these two clowns out the door. I think more likely it was a threat of a major donor threatening to pull a $100 million donation because money talks louder than the value of, well, values these days. But either way, these two are out. Now, some on the left are screaming bloody murder over this, calling it cancel culture, while simultaneously claiming that free speech must be upheld, even if it is free speech calling for the genocide of Jews. Now, I am a free speech absolutist, but there is a pretty bold line between speech that simply offends people and speech that calls for the elimination of an entire religious group. Important to note, universities shield and coddle certain students, the LGBTQ and the heavyset ones. So let's just stop pretending college campuses are some kind of haven for speech, okay? But either way, it's pretty damn rich of these leftists to squawk about cancel culture and the merits of free speech, given, you know, the obvious. They did the same thing when conservatives decided to boycott Bud Light after the company's transgression. It was rich then, and it's rich now, coming from these morons who literally invented cancel culture, like Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben's, Land O'Lakes Butter, Goya, Paw Patrol, Live PD, cops, funding for law enforcement in general, Chris Harrison, Morgan Wallen, Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle, My Pillow, the Washington Redskins, the Cleveland Indians, the white Jake from State Farm, unvaccinated Americans, doctors who spoke truth about COVID, J.K. Rowling, Gina Carano, Cracker Jacks, Donald Trump, Mr. Potato Head, Dr. Seuss, nearly every damn Christmas song, the word normal on skin and hair products, and last but not least, Fox News and OutKick as a whole. So once again, to these folks who are now selectively butthurt that a university president was pressured to step down after coddling anti-Semitism on our campus, I say shut up and sit down. And those are my final thoughts from Nashville. God bless and take care.